introduced a subset of messages in our uh, journey toward fullness. And it's, uh, we call it matters along the way. It's part of the fullness. Uh, in fact, today is the 21st message in our look at fullness. But this idea of matters along the way, we talked about the, um, about being aware of satanic plans. We're not doing that because we want to give glory or honor to the devil. We're doing that because it's wise to understand his methods. In fact, Paul commended the believers. He said, be on your guard, watch your behavior. We don't want to give the enemy an advantage because we understand his devices. We know his strategies. We talked about four words that we can always associate with the enemy. We talked about destruction, deception, uh, uh, distortion and distraction. All of these are found in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, he begins with extreme persecution. The enemy's plan, first thing he usually does is he tries to give a knockout blow in the first round through persecution. If persecution fails to work, then what we find is that he will try distortion. He'll take a good thing. In Acts chapter 4, it was persecution. Um, but in Acts chapter 5, he takes the phenomenal generosity of the church manifested through Barnabas and others. And he says, well, I'll, I'll find a way to distort that so that that's why Paul said, don't let your good be evil spoken of. So he distorted something powerful and beautiful and life-giving, and it was the generosity of the church. And we have the episode of Ananias and Sapphira. Then in chapter 6, he says, all right, if that doesn't work, because what happened? God dealt with it and the church grew. What happened with persecution? God protected them and the church grew. So the enemy changes strategies, and he says, well, then I will distract them from their purpose. And there was a legitimate need. It was the distribution of food to the widows. There was nothing sinful or demonic about that, which gives me a chance to preach a 15-second sermon right here. You will always have problems in your church. You'll always have problems in your home. You'll always have problems in your marriage. That doesn't mean you give up on those things. What matters is how you deal with those problems. And the enemy tried to distract the, those people from their major calling and he knew that if he can't get you to um, uh, stop doing the work of the Lord he just wants you to do it poorly and that's what he tried to do in Acts chapter 6 and what happened they, uh, they stayed focused on their call they fixed the problem and the church started growing again and what we find when we know the enemy's devices is that no matter what he throws at us, we just keep growing. So today I want to talk about the word deception. Now last week was destruction, it was persecution. Today I want to talk about deception. And I, I want to step out of the book of Acts for just a second, this going from chapter to chapter. And I want to talk about the great deceiver. Now, I want to do three things today, and not all of it is in the outline. Um, so again, don't be, don't be worried if it seems like we're not working through the outline very quickly because it's, it's again, given to you for you to study and move through. Um, I want to do three things. Number one, I want to explain a principle 
that I think we probably know intuitively as the, as the children of God. Um, let me fix this so I don't hang myself. There we go. Um, I think I've got it. Justin, look. Okay, I think we got it. Um, I want to explain a principle, though, so that we, I think whenever you hear it, you'll say, yeah, of course. But it's bigger than we think, and, and it is this. When you look through the scripture, great moments are all in the scripture. I mean the decisive moments when the people of God, whether it's Israel or the church, are about to go this way or this way. It's almost always, not always, but it's almost always a battle for truth. Because truth matters. That's why the enemy is known as the father of lies. He is into deception. We'll talk about that nature that he has today. He's the father of lies. For instance, when you look at the book of Deuteronomy, whenever it says that the children of Israel were read the law of Moses again to call them back into account, uh, the law of Moses actually technically is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of that is the Torah, but it almost exclusively meant the book of Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy was a legal document where the law was represented and the, the new generation going into the land was, was represented, the same law that their mothers and fathers had received, and it was given as a legal document. And it ends very powerfully saying, if you obey God, this is what he will do. If you disobey God, this is what he will do. So the book of Deuteronomy calls them to task with what are you going to do with the word of the Lord. Um, we think also about the book of Jeremiah. And we know that uh, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. You know he's my favorite Old Testament prophet. And um, I love Jeremiah. I read it several times a year. But when you really read through it a lot, you find that even though God is about to bring Jerusalem and Judah into judgment, there's another battle that's going on all the way through the book of Jeremiah, almost to the end. And it is the battle between Jeremiah and Huldah, the true prophets, fighting against the false prophets. The book of Jeremiah is a battle for the truth. What are you going to do with the word of God? And what you find in the book of Jeremiah is that both of them use the same words, the true prophets and the false prophets, but the people lacked discernment to know who was manipulating the truth and who was telling the truth. It's the same thing in the book, um, or, or, or excuse me, in the story of the temptation of Jesus. The enemy came to him with three temptations, just like he did to Eve in the book of Genesis. And every one of them were couched in Scripture. See, that's why it is so incredibly difficult if you only have a passing familiarity with Scripture. You're at a great disadvantage because the enemy knows Scripture. And he will use Scripture in temptations. James says, you believe? Be careful what you lay your claim to. He said, you believe? That's wonderful. So do the demons. They believe. And they tremble. And what James was saying, I believe, is that the demons who distort and twist the word of God, they have a better understanding of it than you do because even though they twist it, they know the truth of it and it creates a trembling 
of fear. They know the truth. And sometimes Christians don't know the truth as well as devils do. Well, of course, that's not anyone in our church. But uh, you, you, go, you go also to Acts chapter 15. One of the most, if not the most critical chapter, uh, at least one of the three or four most critical chapters in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 15. You had the Judaizers that said, if you are going to become a Christian, a believer in Jesus, you first have to become a Jew. If you're a man, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep all the law of Moses. And um, you, you have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. And those were the Judaizers, the men that they loved the law. They loved the word. In fact, their whole argument was based on scripture. But Paul said, you're quoting scripture, but you're not quoting it accurately. You're missing the point of what all of this scripture did. And you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. If you want to observe your Jewish heritage, you can, as long as you understand that everything's fulfilled in Jesus. It, Paul never did say you can't be Jewish anymore. Paul just said you don't have to be Jewish in order to become a Christian. And the church was faced with a decision <laughs> that they were going to make that basically said you're going to go this way or you're going to go this way. And it was huge. It was, a hu it was, it was so, so dynamic that in our culture, where we're, where we're such a diverse culture, we don't understand that there were these drop-dead issues. And, and the, the, the battle, when everything was said and done, and James gave his decision... He says, look, this is what the Word of God teaches. This is what the Word of God does. This is where the Word of God is taking us. So what that battle was about was we know the truth. Both of you are saying truth. But which is the truth that represents the heart of God? Which is the half-truth? And so James, with great confidence, and boy, I can't tell you how dynamic that moment was. James said this, it seemed, writing to Christians all throughout the empire. He said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not put this burden on you. We could, but we choose not to because we believe this represents the heart of God. And loved ones, what I want to tell you is that we are in a point in American Christianity right now where we are needing, we're being called to step up to the plate. And, and we're, boy, excuse me. This is why you don't mow your lawn on a Saturday afternoon. In fact, I may just not mow it again. No, I'm teasing. Um, well, I, 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 Never mind. And uh, we, we are being called to understand what is the Scripture say and what is the meaning of Scripture. Through Facebook, through websites, through social media, um, we have such amazing technology that can be used for God. But what we also have is we have... A, a situation now that we've never had before in history where if you don't like what you're being taught, 
You just search until you find something that you like. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with searching for light on a dark subject. There's nothing wrong with trying to get illumination on something. We, we all do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to understand that when we talk about the New Testament church, the New Testament church, kept, they kept being driven back to Scripture. And through the discerning of the Holy Spirit, they said, this is the truth of Scripture. The apostles uh, at least twice said there are people that claim to be believers, but they wrestle the Scripture to their own destruction. You know what it's like to get somebody in a headlock or maybe you got put in a headlock and you get twisted until you conform to what somebody wants you to look like. And we do that to scripture sometimes. And loved ones, this is, I know this is a difficult message. It's not difficult because I don't want to preach it. It's difficult because it goes against so many trends that we see in Christianity right now. But we not only need to know the scripture, but we need to, with integrity, understand scripture. And we need to hold to the truth of scripture, not obscure new revelation that you can find everywhere. We need to understand the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There, there, there is um, a hierarchy of truth. There are things that are generally true. There are things that are true in certain situations. There are things that are true, but they're not eternal. There are things that are true and they're wise, but they're not binding. But then there is the truth that is found in the word of God. And we must not treat the unalterable, unchangeable, undeniable word of God. We must not change it into something to fit our perspective or to fit our wisdom. And if we do, we're doing nothing less than what Israel did when they changed the image of God into the golden calf. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. So I want to talk to you about a principle. I'm going to show you an illustration of it. it don't worry. We, we, we're, we're, going to, we're going to be like a, that uh, a groundhog popping up all over the outline. So don't worry about the outline. Um, the second thing that I want to do is I want to talk to you about Satan's nature. Most of that is in the outline. I want to talk to you about the battles. I want to talk to you about his nature. And then when we go to the Christian life lessons, there are maybe three or four takeaways that I want us to have because this is the battle of the ages right now. I mean, it's always been. But right now, because there is so much material, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be a Luddite. I'm not trying to say that technology is wrong or that information is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm always accused of that when I say something like this. But what I'm saying is you've got to decide your source of truth. And you can't take everything that is available in an age of information where there is a glut of perspectives. You got to decide where is truth and what am I going to do with it. Okay. Father, help us. Now, where I want to, this is not in your notes, and you don't need to look up the passage. I want to explain to you the dynamic of the battle. The, I said great moments are almost always battles for truth. Um, when we read Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to spend about a few minutes there. 
When we go to Nehemiah chapter 8, it's one of the most amazing, amazingly redemptive and revelatory chapters in all of God's Word. Let me give you the background. The children of Israel, now the children of, it, of Israel, the northern kingdom, they went into captivity with the Assyrians in 722, 723 BC. They've been in captivity for a long time. Um, and and we, we find from the New Testament records that many of them that went into captivity from the northern kingdom came back with Babylon. Uh, I mean, with the Judah, uh, with the citizens of Judah out of Babylon. Um, not all of them, but many of them did. That was in 722, roughly, B.C. <clears throat> now in 586, the third of three uh, captivities taking Jerusalem and Judea, or, or Judah captive, takes place in 586. There had been one in like 606 where they took people like Daniel. There had been one in the early 590s where they took more. But in 586, they say there's nothing we can do with these people. Jeremiah has been preaching to the Jews from Jerusalem. Uh, Daniel has been preaching to the Jews um, from uh, Babylon. And everything's coming to a head. And finally, they go into bondage, and they're in bondage for approximately 70 years, some more, some less, but it was approximately 70 years. Now, God is calling them back, and we have a tendency to think that because everybody was brought back, they all had I love Israel buttons, and they were waving flags. I want to tell you, it was a terrifying time. They got back to find that the land was occupied by people that they thought didn't belong there. They had a, a kind of a theology of Judaism, the Samaritans, but it was skewed. It was a, it was a hybrid, and it was a, a situation of I'll take a little of this and I'll take a little of that. They believed in the coming Messiah. They believed in Jehovah, but it was, it was skewed. They didn't accept the whole message the whole council, they would be like the Sadducees of the New Testament. They believed what they wanted to believe. And the Jews who came back that wanted to walk with God said, what, what is this? How did these people get in our land? How did these people get in our church? You know, And it was a, it was a tough time, so they had religious opposition. And the people that were in the land that were left behind they were so angry. They said, we're going to wipe you out. We don't want you here. They lied about them. There was political intrigue. It was so bad that when they were building the walls under Nehemiah, you remember what they did. Uh, it says that it got to the point where um, everybody just worked on the wall in front of their house because moving was difficult. Um, and it's, it's, that's also a good way to get something done. Um, let people work where they have responsibility. But they ended up having their trowel or whatever their tool was in one hand and a weapon in the other. In other words, it meant they were ready to work or they were ready to fight depending on what happened. And these people are wanting to come back to God. Now, there are some lessons you learn when God starts calling you home. We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get through with the devil. But... Um, there are some great lessons. They, they learn, first of all, that you build God's house first. Um, then you build the city walls. Um, loved ones, I believe in rebuilding the walls of our life. I believe in rebuilding the walls of our personality. 
I believe in restoring what the enemy has destroyed. I believe that. But you always start with rebuilding the house of God. Because you can go to all the sessions you want to go to. You can go to all the conferences you want to go to. And I believe we ought to. I believe there's a place for counseling. I believe there's a place for conferences. I believe there's a place for, for small groups. That's why we're putting such emphasis on small groups these days instead of huge gatherings um, or huge conferences. Because we believe that so much is accomplished when we'll come together in these small groups. And to Darren and Mandy, thank you for what you're doing with small groups. Uh, thir 36, is it, small groups, something like that? Yeah, more than we've ever had. And we encourage you to find a group and plug into it because so much happens there. But we also know this, doesn't matter what small group you go to, it doesn't matter what psychologist you go to or what Christian recovery group you go to, as good as those things are, you have to settle matters with God first. And then he'll help you rebuild the walls. You build the temple, then you rebuild the walls. And they taught us that. And Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah is there rebuilding the walls. Ezra was responsible for spiritual recovery. And they, under the leadership of God, call the people together they're going to say it's not enough for us to just rebuild structures. We've got to get to the truth of Scripture. We're going to go back to what Moses said, and we are going to rebuild from there. Now, the Bible says the people were hungry. They were hungry. And uh, we don't know how many were there, but we know that Ezra stood on a platform probably about half the size of our platform up here. It could have been large, but I'm saying that would have held everybody. That was part of the program. We know from the scripture that he had six elders on his right and seven on his left. You say, what spiritual significance is that of six and seven? I don't know. I think it's just because you can't divide 13 evenly. I, I don't know. I don't think there's any great spiritual, you know, he just, he had an extra guy, six and seven. And he came to the platform, and it says from morning, and that Hebrew word means for the appearance of the light. It means when dawn broke, which would have been approximately 6 a.m. He, he stood, and he opened the scroll, and he was about to start reading the Law of Moses, probably the book of Deuteronomy, probably. And all the people stood at daybreak, and we find that they are still standing at lunchtime. And um, <clears throat> some went out and, you know, and got coffee in the cafe, and <laughs> maybe some sent out for Chick-fil-A. I don't, I don't know. But for six hours, they stood while Ezra read for six hours. Now, it says that when he opened the book, he blessed the people. And the people said, amen, amen. And there was such an anointing. This is what I hunger for, and I long for this. There was such a hunger for the word of God, to know the truth of God, that when he began to read, uh, and, and it wasn't even a great sermon. It was the reading of the word. The people fell on their faces and worshiped and began praising God. He had to yell probably as he read because of the interaction with the people. 
That goes on for six hours. I mean, they weren't interrupting him, but they were calling out to God. The Holy Spirit was touching their lives. Most of them had never been in a religious gathering like this. And the purpose was to reacclimate them to a people that worship God. And the Bible says that after the noon hour, something happened with a group of, a couple of leaders and the Levites that were gathered to assist. That's what Levites did. You had the priests and you had the Levites and um, the, the common Levites, and they were to assist with everything. And they began to do something that was not common, ordinary practice. It sounds strange to us. And from the Hebrew text, you read different translations, it's not clear if some of them came to the platform and began to teach. But what was happening is they realized that the people, they had lost their Hebrew heritage. Now, they were now going to become, instead of a Hebrew-speaking people, they were, they were now an Aramaic-speaking people, which was very close. But they've got the Word of God, and it's in a language they didn't fully understand, written decades earlier. They're part of a generation. Now, let me tell you this. They were under the judgment of God. That's all most of them knew. They had been in Babylon, many of them, for 70 years. If anybody said, oh, I'm going back to Jerusalem, I used to live there, I, I remember the temple, they, you were looking at people that were at probably at least in their 80s. And these people, I want to tell you, when you have spent your whole life being told you are where you are because you're under judgment, you are what you are because you have violated the law of God, I want to tell you, even if it's true, it's hard to see God's keeping power while you're in judgment. It's hard to see God moving in your life while you're in judgment. We, we are not good. None of us are good at seeing the big picture. All they knew is that all their life they've been under judgment. They're where they are because God was angry with them, angry enough to send them out of the city that he loved, angry enough to allow Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple. And now they're back. Now they're in the land. And you say, well, glory to God, they ought to be happy. God brought them back into the land. This is time to shout. It's always easy for us to look back and say that because we've got the whole book. We know how they got there and we know how it turns out. And furthermore, we know where it's going. They didn't have that. They didn't understand that. And something began to happen. The language was close, but different enough. They weren't fully understanding. It could have happened, especially when Moses came to the parts of the law and said, you don't understand, uh, you didn't know this, but God said, if you disobey me, I mean, if you obey me, I'll bless you like this. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you like this. And they're saying, this is all I've ever known. Is this the word of the Lord? Is this the way God relates to me? This has been my life, absolutely. I've been in slavery. I've been, in, I've been cast out of my land. I grew up hearing stories from grandma and grandpa about the way it used to be, but I've never known that. And then something amazing begins to happen. A handful, uh, a dozen or so that are named, 12 or 13, begin to move out among the crowd. 
and they began, maybe they knew the language of this group that had come from this area. Maybe they could speak uh, the language of Babylon and they knew how to relate. It would be like if we had a sudden move of God in here and I just was talking, I was trying to cover so much I couldn't get it all in and I was creating confusion. I was declaring the word of God. There was a sense of God's presence. People were responding to the presence of the Lord, but they said, what do I do with this? And Bunk looks around and he sees eight or ten young adults over there. <coughs> and he says, they're mine. They're mine. And Bunk, who knows the language of Babylon and the language of Hebrew, he has his own scroll. And he walks over to them. I know we don't do service this way. But to just give you an idea of what was going on, Bunk walks over to that handful of people and he says, let me explain to you what pastor's saying. Let me read it in a language you understand and let me tell you what's going on here. And they begin to do that all over the place. And can you imagine the chaos of people crying out to God, people worshiping God, and Bunk over here saying, let me explain that to you. And Darren and Mandy back here saying, no, 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 no. God's not mad at you anymore. He's brought you out of this. And the Bible says something phenomenal began to happen. It was a battle for truth. They heard truth, but they didn't hear the truth of the truth. Have you ever wondered why there are so many opinions on social media? There are so many statements on social media. And they destroy faith. They destroy love. They destroy unity. And it's done so with a Bible verse. Because it's one thing to quote a verse... It's one thing to hear a verse. It is another thing altogether, as this passage in Nehemiah 8 says, to hear a, the word and understand it. And loved ones, God is moving among us and God is moving upon other groups. <coughs> I believe. God is moving and he says, I want you to know truth. But I want you to know the truth of the truth. Understand that when the enemy came to Eve, he distorted God's word. <coughs> when he came to Jesus, he quoted the verses, but distorted the verses. And you say, well, Jesus knew better. Jesus knew the word. See, the key is to know the scriptures better than the devil knows the scriptures. And that's what was going on in Nehemiah 8. You know what the guy said? You know what Bunk said? You know what Darren and Mandy said? You know what the other elders said to people that were in this bear? All they knew is I'm hearing the word of God saying this is, this is my lot in life. I am cursed. I have violated the law of God. I have failed him. And this is my lot in life. I, my hopes are dashed. I thought we were going to start seeing harvest. I thought we were going to start seeing restoration. But we are not under the blessing of God. You know what they said? They said, this is not the time to cry. Now, most pastors would pay $10 per crier to get a congregation to respond that way. They said, this is not a time to cry. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time. In fact, when they left in a, in a little bit later, well, I guess next day, when they left, everybody left loaded down with doggy bags of food. Go take this to your friends that couldn't come. And this is the catchphrase that we know it. It's on our refrigerators. This is what they said. 
This is not a day to cry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, we use that verse when we're trying to get somebody's pessimism to change. We use that verse when we want everybody to have a silly Colgate grin during worship or something like that. We, we, we know the joy of the Lord is our strength, but we don't understand where that comes from. That comes from people who are wrestling with the truth, but don't know the truth of the truth. They're being bombastically attacked. They're being bombarded by people that all they can do is remember this verse. And what, have we, what do we say all the time here? You don't build doctrine on a verse. You build doctrine on all verses. You remember when some of them were told about the first deliverance of Jerusalem when Sanballat and, and uh, his representatives and, and, and the, the army of Assyria at that time, that was before the days of Babylon, they stood outside the wall. You remember what they said to the people of God? They started quoting religious language. God has ordained that you fall because of your sins. God has sent us. And you know what they did? They mapped out Deuteronomy pretty well for the people of God. But the problem is that wasn't the word of God against Israel at that moment. God was going to defend Israel. And God said, no, I want you to know this. He spoke through Isaiah. <coughs> he said, you've got to understand, there will not be any success on the part of this army. They're quoting verses, or they're alluding to verses, but they will not be successful. There will not be an arrow that flies in this city. There will not be a successful siege against it. And in a matter of hours, they are sent back the way they came. And God spared Jerusalem after the fall of Assyria. Are you beginning to understand what I'm saying? They said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, but it says this, yes, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. We need to know the word of God so that when the devil says this verse, we understand this verse. We, we, we need to be like Jesus. <coughs> and, and as far as I can tell, Jesus never mowed the lawn. Especially on Saturday. <coughs> We need to be more like Jesus, where when the enemy, it, it, was, it comes from a Puritan writer, but I think it came from the heart of Jesus. Never believe the devil, even when he tells the truth. Never believe the devil, even when he tells the truth. And loved ones, God is moving this church. You, every one of you, God's hand is on you, so that no matter what voices say, or what accusation comes. You have enough of the word of God in you that truth trumps truth. The word of God rightly interpreted, that's the battle right now. That's why you and I are struggling and we may, we may get bogged down with some prophetic utterance. We may get bogged down with some pastoral preaching. We may get bogged down with some post um, on social media and we get bogged down because there are verses attached to it there is a there is an appearance of righteousness attached to it and we say well it must be right because God seems to be blessing them he's sure not blessing me right now God is strengthening you 
every one of us. He's strengthening you to know the truth. And he wants you to rise up in victory. We've got to learn to say this is not right. You may give me a reference, but this is not right. Oh, the word of God stands. Word of God's always right. But the way you're using it ain't right. You're like the little boy I told you about a few weeks ago. This is just so good I have to tell you even if you've already heard it. A little boy learning his vocabulary words and to prove that you knew it, you know, because you can kind of bluff your way through an explanation or definition, you have to use it in a sentence. And his big vocabulary word was notwithstanding. I mean, that's a big word. How do you define notwithstanding? And when you came time to write a sentence, he said, I wore out the seat of my pants, but notwithstanding. <laughs> it sounds good. It really does. It sounds accurate. But when you get to the heart of it, it's, it's a logical statement. But it's not what this, the word means. You and I are being flooded with that. That's why, that's why you need to close some accounts. That's why you need to stop searching. Except to go into the presence of God. I am not saying you need to be a Luddite. I'm not saying you need to disconnect from technology. I'm not saying you need to stop your Bible studies online. I'm not saying any of that, but I'm saying you have to have enough of a relationship with truth. You have to have enough of a sensitivity to the Lord that you know when the enemy is using, thus saith the Lord, to lie. When people are, are using, thus saith the Lord, to lie. Now, let's look at the second thing, and uh, I'm doing fine, but you have to hurry. You're going to have to hurry. Let's look at his nature Genesis 3 and Revelation 12. And there's a quote under the central truth from, from Adrian Rogers. It, it, is, it is fantastic. Um, I, I, I began to understand something about the, the, the great deceiver from a sermon that I heard him preach, oh, I don't know, probably 45 years ago, called The Great Deceiver. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Um, I encourage you to read that, uh, that passage or that quote from Adrian Rogers that I gave you, but we don't have time to deal with it right now. I do want to say this. When deception occurs... It can happen two ways. It can happen through ignorance. I don't mean that in a demeaning way, or, you know, you're ignorant. I mean ignorance of something. Or it can happen through the decision to disobey. Eve was not the primary guilty party in this because Scripture says she was deceived. She was deceived. She believed the enemy's lie. And it made sense to her. But loved ones, she was still caught up in judgment. So sincerity is not enough. 
You need to trust God's word. She knew God's word. She quoted it back pretty well. But you need to be convinced that God's word is true. You need to understand it. You can fall just because you're deceived. But the thing that made Adam's sin so damning, and that's why he leads the way in condemnation, and, and God puts this sin at the feet of Adam more so than Eve, is because there's no indication at all that Adam was deceived. He knew what he was doing. We don't know what his logic was. Did he, did he say, did he love Eve so much that he said, I'd rather, I'd rather live life under a curse with her than, than live life without her? I, I, I don't know what he was thinking, but he did it full-blown knowing what he was doing. And the point I'm trying to make is that whether you just reject truth knowing truth or you reject truth because you haven't searched out truth, either way will get you in trouble. And that's what they face. Now that shows us something about the deception of Satan. We're going to just refer to Revelation 12 later. Uh, see, I told you, remember the groundhog popping up every now and then. But I want to take just a minute to talk about the deceit of Satan and the defeat of Satan. Now, what's the first thing we've determined? Most of the great battles in life are a battle to win the war for truth. Not just, you know, why do we have 2,400 denominations Somebody didn't pursue their ideas far enough to find out what's true and what's not true. I'm not, I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. I'm just saying God is not multi-personality. God is not schizophrenic so that he changes his mind on all of these points. You, you've got to, you know, you say, well, which church is totally right? Uh, I, I know the church that is totally right. I know the church that has its doctrine right. I know the church that lives right. It's found in the book of Revelation. It'll be coming down from heaven after we all get glorified and we all get transformed. That'll be the church that's perfectly right. Uh, until then, there's not going to be one that I know of. Um, but we're still responsible for truth. Um, now, let's, let's talk... Um, Let's talk about his deceit for just a second. There are three lies. This is what Satan will concentrate on with every one of us. Hear me. Number one, he will lie to you about the quality of life God intends for you. He wants you to believe that God owes you nothing, which is true, but it's a lie. <laughs> you see, that's the trouble with this kind of false truth. Uh, or fake truth, and I'm not talking about fake news. I'm talking about fake truth. It, it, it takes some kernel of truth and then blows it up over here, but to the exclusion of the rest of it. God owes me nothing. That's true. But because of what Jesus did, God owes me everything for Jesus' sake. Not for my sake, but for Jesus' sake. Um, and you know what I mean. O's is not a good word. He lies to you about the quality of life God has for you. And he says, listen, talk to me about this tree. Is it true that God said you can't eat of the trees of the garden? And you know what Satan does? He will point out a single prohibition while ignoring thousands of things given freely for us to enjoy. The, the enemy will point out one thou shalt not and ignore 10,000 thou shalt's. And we have got to come to that settled assurance that when God says thou shalt not, it's really I love you. That's right. 
You know, nobody, nobody is going to counseling, or I hope not in here, telling the counselor, I'm, I'm just so scarred because my mama, when I was a toddler, she told me I couldn't go play in the traffic. And my mama didn't love me. If she loved me, she'd trust me enough to play in the traffic. Or if my mama wanted me to have a fulfilled life, she, she wouldn't have kept this from me. Well, any, any counselor in their right mind would, would, first of all, ask you if you're high or, or if you're drunk. And then the counselor would explain to you, now don't get me wrong, I know parents do wrong things, we need counseling, I know that. But not playing in traffic is not one of them. That counselor will do everything in their power to explain to you, you do understand when your mother said, don't do that. It was your mother saying, I love you. I, I don't want to spend life without you. I love you. And the enemy doesn't want you. He lies about the quality of life. So he says, you have been crushed. He presents a God where everything that is enjoyable is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. I remember when I was, I, I, I'd never been a pastor, never even been on staff. I was a Bible college student. But I preached at a church for a week, and it was, it, I was fighting demons the whole time. Um, it was a totally dysfunctional church. And I remember in a, at family dinner, just had a bunch of family members around. They asked how it went, and I said, well, you know, not good. And um, we talked about it a little bit, and I said, you know, I said, one good thing. I said, I learned I don't ever want to pastor a church like that. And, one, and I'm in it. And one of my relatives said, oh, God, we plead the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus. I didn't know what had happened. And she said, oh, you need to know that when you say something like that, God will make you pastor a church like that. I looked at my daddy and he just goes. <laughs> and she gave me a lecture. I, I mean, for me to not be able to enjoy dinner at my mama's table, it was big. And she gave me a lecture and I, I talked to the rest of the family that I trusted afterwards. And that was kind of a divided issue. Yeah, God always makes you do things you, you say you won't do or say you don't want to do. That's his way of humbling you. And, and my daddy, who was the least educated biblically of any of them, told me later, he said, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the Bible said humble yourself so God doesn't have to do it. And I think if you just keep yourself humble, he's not going to send you to that church. And I said, deal, <laughs> deal. See, my daddy didn't know how to articulate it, but my daddy was saying, every time God says, thou shalt not, it's an I love you. God is crazy about you. God loves you. He secondly lies about the consequences of sin uh, and carnal living. See, I, I'm, nobody preaches grace more than I do, but at the same time, we've got we've to watch out for a grace that says you can live any way you want. That's not grace. That's presumption. I remember on our way to a funeral when my mom had lost someone very close to her. Oh, well, we all loved this person. They had died a very 
tragic death uh, at, at the hands, murdered at the hands of someone. And my, my mama took my hand in hers and she said, I want you to understand this. I want you to never forget this. She said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Now, that wasn't original with her. I think it was Billy Sunday that said that originally. But what she was trying to tell me, she said, when you look in this coffin and see so-and-so, and it seems surreal and unbelievable, I want you to know this is what sin does. But the enemy does not want you to understand the consequences of sin. And the third thing he'll do, and then we're going to move on, is he lies about the motivation of God. He said that God's not doing this for your welfare. God's not saying don't eat from this tree for your benefit. It's for his benefit. He knows there's something mystical and magical about that tree. And the moment you eat of the fruit, you'll begin to become like him. So God is trying to keep you from your best destiny. Now, we know there's uh, the defeat of Satan is mentioned in Revelation 12. We'll have to do this some other time. But there are three ways we defeat Satan, and it's not by silly ritual. Number one, we defeat Satan by Christ's work on the cross. He says, Revelation 12, you got the text in your notes. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, there's, there are mindsets, there are verses, there are practices, there are rules for living. I think those are good things. But at the end of the day, it's not your discipline that will defeat the devil. It's the blood of the lamb. You, you, you live under the blood of the lamb. Number two, we defeat Satan by what we truly believe and live out daily. It says by the word of their testimony. This does not mean if you just have a positive confession, you defeat the enemy. Now, I think you ought to have a positive confession. I think, I think we ought to stay on the, the positive side instead of the negative side. But when it says they defeated Satan uh, by the word of their testimony, it meant this simply. The things they believe and live out. What you believe is one thing, but what you believe and live out is something altogether different. You overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb. That's his part. You overcome Satan by believing the right things and then living it out. That's our part. And number three, we defeat Satan by living a life with nothing held back. It's, it's a difficult translation, not difficult in the sense that it's hard to understand. It, it's difficult in the sense that it's wordy. It makes it very, very wordy in English. Uh, they overcame it by the blood of the Lamb and word of their testimony and by not loving their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's, that's very choppy and very wordy. But basically what it says, they loved their lives, uh, or excuse me, they did not love their lives to the degree that it would keep them from obeying God. In other words, all in. All in. You overcome the devil not by a negotiated settlement, but by being all in. All in. Now, let's wrap this up with the Christian life lessons. Now, what we've done, we've talked about how important the battles in your life are more than you think, and you are in a huge one right now. By you, I mean American Christianity is in a huge battle right now where we are facing the decision of what we're going to do with truth, what's going to be our truth, and who we're going to accept our truth from. Now, now don't, don't get me wrong. No pastor is perfect on every point. 
No church is perfect on every point. Nobody is right all the time. I'm not saying, you know, find somebody that's right all the time. There is nobody like that that's right all the time. But there's a difference between being in error about something and living in a spirit of error. Uh, both, you, both people, the one that's in error on something and the one that lives in the spirit of error, they both speak the same language. They both use the same scripture references. But when this person uses scripture, it brings life. When this person uses scripture, it brings guilt and condemnation, brings confusion, brings consternation. And loved ones, we just need to grow up. We need to grow up and quit being held hostage by people that live in a spirit of error. Okay, uh, I don't know how you got off on that. So let's, let's go to the Christian life lessons. I'm, I'm kidding. Four things I want you to understand. Three things really and then an illustration. We're done. Number one, God's plan is simple. God's plan is simple. It, it's, it's not easy all the time, but it's simple. How do I live this out? I realize, as we've said for years, there's nothing I can do that will make God love me more. There's nothing of all the good deeds, of all the wonderful accomplishments I can do, not one of them will make God love me any more. And if I fail, I'm not minimizing sin. You read what the scripture says about chastisement and you'll find God takes our failure very seriously. But there's nothing I can do that will make him love me less. He may love me with a switch. He may love me with chastisement. But God's love for me is perfect. And on, our, on the way to heaven, regardless of what we do well and what we don't do well, our heart needs to be for him. But we need to understand he loves me all the time, utterly, completely, and selflessly. You say, well, pastor, I don't know. One, one day you tell me I'm a sinner. The next day you tell me I'm a servant and I can't keep it straight. Well, let me just, I'm glad you brought it up. Let me just straighten that up. In the past, God dealt with me as a sinner. In the past, that's the only way he could deal with me because that's what I was. I was a sinner. Now this issue about a servant. Yeah, in the future, and I am a servant, I know that. But servant really comes into play in the future because in the future, God will reward me on my life as a servant to him. How well did I obey him? So in the past, he dealt with me as a sinner. In the future, he'll deal with me as a servant. But what about right now? As I am moving from a condemned sinner to a rewarded servant, he views me one way, as his son. As his child. He says, as a, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who love him. Guys, I want you to know, he takes care of us greater than a father. Jesus taught this way when he was on earth. He said, if you being evil, meaning relative to God, you being le less than perfect, <laughs> if you know how to treat your children and love on them, how much more so? Will God love on you? I love what John said. Oh, John, I love you, buddy. He says, behold, what manner of love. And I can see this old man speaking to the church in Ephesus. He's saying, look at this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed in making us 
his children. He, he, he knows that we're a work in progress, John does. He said, beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We're not the finished product, but we're his children. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him then because we will see him. John is amazed. He says, you cannot comprehend how loved you are. In fact, the Greek word that is translated, behold, what manner of love. There's no good English word to describe it. It's basically what otherworldly. One translation says this, what alien kind of love has God bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So God's plan is simple. He's for you. God's plan is simple. You win. God's plan is simple. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. You win. But the devil does not want you to believe that. Number two, if Satan cannot convince you to do a wrong thing, he will be satisfied to have you believe a wrong thing. We have to always be in tune with that. When someone preaches something that's not true, whenever someone takes a doctrinal stand that doesn't ring true to Scripture, my, <laughs> my grandmother used to have an old saying, I'd ask her about stuff, and I know this sounds crude, but this is what my old uneducated grandmother said, Grandmother Weeks. I'd, I'd explain it to her. She's the one I told you about when I came to visit her when I was in seminary. I had a book, said Handbook of Biblical Criticism. And it was, a, it was technical terms about higher and lower criticism. It wasn't a criticism of the Bible. She made me throw it away. I said, Grandma, I've got a test. I, I need this book. This book ain't staying in my house. So I had to throw away a handbook of biblical criticism. But this is the way she would deal with stuff that makes sense to her. This is what she'd say. She said, that don't smell like Jesus. And I thought the first couple of times, maybe I misunderstood her. She said, that don't smell like Jesus. And, and you, I asked her to explain it one time. She said, oh, she said, it goes back to your grandpa. He was a, a, a drunk, basically, what he was. And he got right with God just before he died. But he was not an easy man. And uh, she said, no lights would be on. I'd hear a door. And I didn't know if it was my son coming home from work or I didn't know if it was one of the girls coming. She said, just give it a minute. And I could tell by the smell who it was. <laughs> did, they, did they smell like the drugstore or did they smell like the bar? And she said, even in darkness, I learned to know what was what because of the smell. And she said, I want to tell you something. This, this stuff that you're reading about, she said, this don't smell like Jesus. And you know what? She was right. This don't smell like Jesus. And, and all my life, when something sounds good, but something's not right, sometimes I just say, it don't smell like Jesus. Yeah. Now, I don't say that preaching because you, you, you don't, wouldn't know what I was talking about, but you do now. I may start saying it more. So we've got to, we, we, we have got to learn what smells right. Have you ever had, guys, your wife take a, a gallon of 
of spoiled milk. It's gone bad. Stick it up to your nose and say, smell of this. And, I, and I've learned to say, no, no. You stick something up to my nose. I'm not inhaling. There's a reason you want me to smell of it. And I'm not going to smell it. Loved ones, your life will be much better if you'll stop inhaling everything that's thrust in your face. <clears throat> Here's number three, the third thing that he wants you to do. If you're going to live right and he can't stop you, he said, well, all right, but I will get their belief system twisted. Here's number three. His goal is for you to look at the Father that is loving us beyond our comprehension. He wants you to look at God and say, I knew you were a hard man. It's that parable in Matthew 25 where he brought in three servants, gave them both coins, and said, invest what's mine, and when I return, I'll reward you. And the first two did great. And they received a reward. But when it came to the third man, he was afraid and, and he hid the coin and he gave the master his coin back, but with no gain. And what was his excuse? He said, I was afraid because I knew you were a hard man. Now, love was going to tell you, nobody else thought he was a hard man. But if the enemy can get you to view God as a hard man, you will effectively, it doesn't mean you won't go to heaven. It'll just mean you're miserable on your way there. It'll mean there won't be any return on your life. And, and loved ones, we've all known people that just are so negative and so fearful. Now, there's a good fear. There's a righteous fear. There's a holy fear. Somebody asked me one time, it was in a men's group, they, they were upset about something. And they said, Pastor, do you, do you fear your wife? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he was trying to drag me into an argument on his side. I said, I fear my wife. He said, you're afraid of your wife? I said, no, 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 that's not what you asked me. You asked me if I fear my wife. I said, I think I could take her. <laughs> I said, I don't think she could hurt me if she tried. I mean, I think I could handle her. He said, then why, why are you afraid of her? I said, you said it again. I didn't say I was afraid of her. I said, I fear her. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I fear my wife in this way. I love her so much. I value our relationship so much. I would be very, very reluctant to do anything that would hurt her or break that relationship. Oh, I've heard her before. And I mean, hopefully whenever we hurt our spouse, it's out of ignorance. We didn't know what we did or didn't realize what we did. But that's one thing. But I want to tell you something. You and I need to understand whenever, if we're tempted to do something wrong, we need to very carefully weigh what that will do to that relationship. Same thing with a pastor with his church or Christians with other, or man with his family. Loved ones, we, we need to fear God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and I'm, you say, are you afraid of God? I'm not afraid of God. I know if I saw him, yeah, I'd probably duck my head. You, you know, Dan Betzer used to say this. He says, everybody says when they get to heaven, they're going to run up to Jesus, jump in his lap. and He said, no, he said, the thunder will keep you away for a while. <laughs> 
not afraid of God. I, I, I tell you, I had, a, I had a vision, a dream one time where I knew that Jesus was on the other side of the door and there was such incredible light that it seemed to be coming through every crack in the wall and the door, through the keyhole. And, and I, I knew, guys, just bear with me. I knew that if I opened that door, I would die. If I saw God in his glory, I knew I would die. You say, well, I guess that made you run. No, it made me go to the door. The angel said, if you do it, you'll die. And I said, I have to see him. It's like that story in the Chronicles of Narnia where somebody asked if Aslan was safe. Aslan, of course, was the equivalent of Jesus. And, and somebody that knew Aslan said, not at all. He, he's the most dangerous thing imaginable. And the, the conversation, I'm not doing it justice, but the conversation went on, then why do you love him so? He said, because, he said why, why do you want to be with him so? He said, because I love him so much, I'd rather be eaten by Aslan than fed by anyone else. And guys, I want to tell you, there's a dimension of life in Jesus where you understand the fear of the Lord, but it's not a terror. And if it goes beyond your understanding, you'd rather be devoured by Jesus than sustained by anything else. But it's not a fear that drives you to... You see, he's not given us a spirit of fear, Paul says, but of power and love and a sound mind. But he has given us a healthy fear but that's not what the enemy wants. He doesn't want you to have a healthy fear. Even the demons have a fear of God. James says, you believe? That's wonderful. So do the demons. And they tremble, like we said earlier. I think I said it in this service. You do two services, it's hard to remember what you said when. <clears throat> but he doesn't, he doesn't want you to have a healthy fear of God. He wants you to view him as a hard man. Where you can't please him. You can't satisfy him. So what he, he wants to do is cause you to forget that God's plan is simple. He wants to convince you to believe a wrong thing if he can't convince you to do a wrong thing. And in your relationship with God, he wants you to have a trembling, cowering, fearful, God's a hard man. Jesus said, come unto me all you that labor or heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls. No, no. I, 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 in the dream, I tried to go through the door, and I woke up. Better to be devoured by Jesus than sustained by anyone else. Now, here's the last thing, and I want you to understand this. <clears throat> Guys, this is so important. Thank you for bearing with me time-wise today. Something has got to happen in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ along these lines. Somebody has got to step up to all the confusion and say simply, an enemy has done this. The last three years has created a climate where what the church says is you've done this. You've done this. You've failed to do this. You failed to do that. And you know what we've got? We've got a nation where none of our problems are seen as solvable. We have a situation in our nation, and I think it's being fueled by the church, 
that says this is right, this is wrong, and the only way you'll ever be right is to agree with me on everything. The only way things will ever get fixed is for you to fix it my way. And, and loved ones, there's no room. There's no room for anybody to stand up and say an enemy has done this unless it's the enemy flesh and blood. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. And when the wheat sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also became evident. And the slaves of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And here's what I want you to understand. The wise owner said this, An enemy has done this. This is the work of the enemy. The slave said, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, while you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the weeds, bind them in bundles, burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. And let me just a minute to explain. Darnell or tares, it was also called bastard wheat. That's not cussing the way it's used. It was called bastard wheat because it looked just like the wheat. But if you ate it, it would give you the symptoms of dysentery. It was, it was horrible. But the thing about the darnel, the tares, is that you could only know that it was the false wheat, tares, when it was harvest time, when the plant reached maturity. Now, there was a window that some scholars have has described as as little as 18 hours in the early sprouting there was just enough difference between the leaves you could tell the wheat from the tares but it lasted literally just hours uh, if you you could it could look fine one day and if you skipped a day you could miss that time but these slaves were good workers they picked it up early and they said, look, look at this, look at this, look at the ridge. It had to do with the ridge on the leaf. Look at this, this is, this is, these are tares. This is good wheat, these are tares. And it scattered all in here. Now what had happened, a competitor, probably a farmer down the road, wanted a higher price for his wheat. So he sabotaged his neighbor's field. And he knew the only way they're going to be able to deal with this is to tear up the whole field. And he will lose a planting season. If he discovers it early enough to plant, to, to pull it up, then I'll have my stuff ready for market first. And this owner said something phenomenal. He said, look, every decision we've got to make has got to be based on this. An enemy has done this. He wants to destroy us. And loved ones, we are in an age right now, Satan is waging warfare, and he has been very, very successful of pitting Christians against Christians. He wants us, at the expense of the harvest, to go in and tear everything up, leave the church, leave the denomination, leave the country, leave whatever it is we want to, we're ready to pull up all the tears. And we don't seem to understand. These guys were sharp. They knew their plants. And they knew that if they did that, it was going to destroy the harvest. And we're willing to destroy the harvest right now because of our offense, because of our hurt, because of our 
position of righteousness. Let me tell you, four things happen if we don't let the Holy Spirit help us. And I want to say this. There's a need to accurately discern the source of teaching, judgment, action, and opinion. Loved ones, everything that comes across your path is not true. And, and, you know, we talk about spiritual gifts. We love the gift of healing. We love the gift of prophecy. We love the gift of, you know, message in tongues, interpretation of tongues. And we believe in all of those things. But we need to understand that the least sought-after gift, as far as I can tell, is the discerning of spirits. There is a spiritual gift where God says, look, you're going to be flooded with deception. You're going to be flooded with lies. You're going to be flooded with people wrestling the scripture and giving half-truths. It's going to be everywhere. And it's going, listen, he said it is going to be so deceiving that you need the gift of the Holy Spirit operating in your life to tell the truth from the false. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to discern truth from error. You need the Holy Spirit to do it. We need to know the scriptures. We need to have the witness of the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Loved ones, I long for the day when the church, instead of arguing over pitting this verse against this verse and this verse against this verse, because you can do that all day long. We need to have the kind of maturity where we say we've looked at this, we've considered this, and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit, and it brings peace to our heart. This is the way we need to go. And if we don't do that, four things will occur, at least four things. Let me give them to you quickly. It's depressing, but look at it this way. I didn't preach on persecution like I did last week. Number one, if we don't walk in Holy Spirit discernment, we will be unable to discern between truth and error. Have you ever read Agatha Christie? You're convinced everybody's guilty. Everybody ought to go to jail until Poirot gives you the final little key and everything fits into place. We need to be able to discern between truth and error. And loved ones, I want to tell you, sometimes truth and error, you'll only be able to discern it by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it'll come. Because what somebody can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. Number two, it may take a week, it may take a month, may take six months, but eventually... If you don't walk in discernment, you will eventually begin to call evil good, and good is called evil. And those two are related. We don't always know good from evil. We don't always know a person's heart. But the discernment of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that it can see and reveal things that we would have never been able to see on our own. Here's number three. If we don't exercise Holy Spirit discernment, we will be willing to exercise a scorched earth policy. Just kill them all. Burn it all down. Close the church. Close the business. Close the denomination. Close whatever we're mad with. My, one of my professors used to say there are people that are always willing to use nuclear weapons to get rid of field mice. He said there are two dozen ways to get rid of field mice, but they go directly to nuclear weapons because it gets rid of the field mice. 
but it also makes sure there will be no harvest on that ground for thousands of years. Okay, Justin, I think we're on target. It's so quiet. We are willing to exercise a scorched earth policy because we lack discernment. And here's the last thing that's the most frightening of all of this. If we don't have Holy Spirit discernment, we can hurt or even destroy what God himself has planted. Hurt or even destroy what God himself has planted. God cares about the harvest. God cares about the wheat. And that's why we need to to honor the past without reversing the future. That's why we need to understand what God does in one generation. See, do you know what's being said about two or three generations back? It was silly. It was foolish the way they did church. Loved ones, I know, I know those people. I sat in class with those people. I, I pray that every generation will do their best to follow the Holy Spirit the way that generation did. No, 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 no. We need to be careful. There are some things that we don't understand because we lack Holy Spirit discernment. Does that mean we have to do it that way always? Oh, goodness, no. No, 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 no. Um, my, 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 I grew up with an attic fan, and then I discovered an air conditioner. Thank God for the attic fan, but I want the air conditioner. But I don't talk about how stupid my daddy was for putting an attic fan in the house. Where are you today? Where does your truth come from? I want to say this. We are in an overwhelming, discouraging time. Again, I know I say it a lot, but I hear it a lot. I've never known a time where the people of God feel as overwhelmed as they do right now. This is overwhelming. It's real. It's real. But I do want to tell you what I've come to believe, and this is, this is the, one of the toughest, but not the, but one of the toughest battles of my life. If you are struggling with a sense of despair and hopelessness, there's no way out of this. It's just, you know, I take one step forward and three steps back. It's okay to have moments like that, but if that's where your life is, I want to just ask you this question. What truth are you latching on to? I'm not critical because lies can sound a lot like the truth. Lies can be spoken in King James English. What are you listening to? Where are you going for your truth? You say, well, I don't, I don't know where to start. Then pour your heart out to God and say, Father, if you don't help me, I'm going to be deceived. If you don't help me, I'm going to be misled. Father, I trust you to lead me into all truth. You said that's what the Holy Spirit would do. He would lead me into all truth. And Father, Pastor says, and I hope he's right, that this is a time when we all need to take a step closer I'm not asking you to believe me. I mean, I hope you will, because I, I think I'm telling you yes. the truth. I, I hope you will. And, and, you know, if you say, well, I don't know if I can believe you or not, I, I'm not going to say, well, that's okay. No, it's not okay. <laughs> but, but I understand. But I tell you what, you can draw close enough to him Amen. that he begins to reveal the difference between light and darkness.
Father, we're out of time again. Please help us. To anyone that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether they're watching online or here in Brown Chapel or here in the sanctuary, anyone that doesn't know you, when we open the altars, please help them call the number on the screen or help them come to the altar area in either of these great sanctuaries here. But Father, there are some of us, we love you with all of our hearts, but we are struggling with truth. We are being lied to and the same words are being used by the liars that are being used by the truth givers. It's, it's, it's bigger than we are. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to come in and begin to teach us the difference between light and darkness, between good and evil. Forgive us for our willingness to just destroy everything and give up on everything because we don't know what's right. Lord, help us to make up our mind today that we are gonna be committed to what you have planted. We don't wanna hurt it. We don't wanna dig it up. We don't want to destroy it. We ask in Jesus' name.